The tomb is empty if you forgot. Maybe it's become commonplace to you. But the empty tomb should resonate in our life as strong today as 2,000 years ago. When the angels announced that he is not here, he is risen, it changed the world forever. You know, it was interesting was we were worshiping together and, and some of the prayers and discussions and dialogue from the worship team. I had this flashback. I hadn't thought of it uh, for a while. A number of years ago when I was pastor at a church in the Midwest, we were into a huge 80,000 square foot building project on this large acreage of land. And it was the week of Easter and we went to meet with the steel construction engineers. And I remember walking into this boardroom and the guy looked at me, and he's, you know, he knows he was dealing with a pastor and his church and stuff. And, and then he recalled it was Easter, and he looks at me, and he goes, Wow, this is your big week, isn't it? It's Easter. <laughs> and I just sort of said, yeah, but I wanted to say, it's not my big week. It's all of our big week. Because Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection was for all people. And so we come here today to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the truth, the life that's possible based on that experience that though historically 2,000 years ago is as powerful and resident today as ever. And my question to you is, has the empty tomb made any difference in your personal life? Has the empty tomb made any difference in your personal life? Because you see, there is this sense of emptiness if we're Willing to admit it as human beings. We feel empty sometimes. And that emptiness can come from things that, that, are, that are brought upon us or life seasons or maybe we're seeking things out and, you know, disappointment happens. Misery can come into our life from different events. There can be uh, <clears throat> a heartache and anxiety that comes. And some of the anxiety doesn't come just because of well, things aren't going well in my life right now. I've seen people who have been scaling the success ladder, climbing, and they're successful in all kinds of ways, and they get to the ladder, at the top of the ladder, and they realize it's leaning against the wrong building. And if they're honest, they're still empty in all their pursuits. It was Augustine, I believe, who said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us, that it can only be filled by God Himself. The empty tomb means... That God is not dead, that He is alive, and He is able to come and fill any emptiness that we may have in our life. For us, for our family, and for our friends. And so we declare this morning a great truth, but we declare to you a great life. If you've never stepped across that line of inviting the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life. You know, it's interesting, it's, uh, a week ago we uh, shared together on Palm Sunday, Behold Your King, it was an Old Testament uh, prophecy that was foretelling uh, the coming of Christ. And Behold Your King was exactly what the Israelites were trying to strum up that week, what's called Passion Week that we've been in. Because you see, they wanted Jesus to be the king, an earthly king. 
They were under the oppression of the Romans. Things weren't going well necessarily, even with some of their own uh, religious elite people, the Jewish people. And so they were looking for the Messiah. And so they longed for the king. Jesus came riding into town on a donkey in a, in a humble kind of way. And they would wave the palm branches. They would throw the cloaks down. They were hailing him as great things. And we said last week, that it was the beginning of the most important week for the most important person who has ever lived on this earth. And that's exactly true. We see Jesus in Passion Week moving from that celebratory Palm Sunday into his frustration with what he was seeing happening in the temple. You know, Jesus, he had anger. Not sinful anger. He had righteous anger. When he saw that there was harm and wrong being done, just like you and I, when we see things that happen in our world, maybe it's something you see on the news, something happening in your own life, in your community, and you say, that's just not right. Well, Jesus got that way. When he walked into the temple and he saw that there was corrupt money changers that were swapping and selling pigeons and lambs and, and doing it in a manner that wasn't honoring to God for the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And he threw over the table. And he pulled out a weapon. He said, my house is to be a house of prayer. I mean, it was a traumatic experience that happened from then. That was all part of the most important week and the most important person's life that's ever walked on this earth. And then we have Jesus coming with his disciples to the upper room. And he shared the Passover meal with them. And he broke the bread and he, he took the cup, symbolizing his, his what it would be the future broken body and his shed blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he went out to pray into the, uh, the Mount of Olives. And his disciples really couldn't stay awake or whatever. And Jesus was praying. But Judas, the one who betrayed him, would betray him, had slipped away. Now, Judas, though we think he's bad, and we looked at this recently as well, he was a confused follower of the Lord because he thought Jesus needed to step out and take off the robe of being a teacher and rabbi and put on a kingly robe and be a king and, and let's get the military going. Let's get changes made here. And so he thought if he prodded him a little bit to be arrested that maybe he would, he would flip it and he would start to step into what other people were hoping, but he was wrong. Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he soon found out that that wasn't going to happen and that he was wrong, and Judas went out and hung himself. Jesus was then arrested in that garden. He was taken, and he was put on all kinds of crazy, illegal trials through the middle of the night. You talk about injustice. Who calls for a trial in the middle of the night? And quickly before you know it, he is being crucified on a cross after he was stripped and he was beaten and whipped and he died on this cross on good friday that's all a part of what we refer to as holy week or passion week we had a good good friday service and we shared together about the meaning of the death of jesus on the cross but their hopes were crushed just as surely as you've had hopes crushed in your own life when there's been the death of a loved one. This was not only the death of a loved one, this was the death of what they'd hoped was their Messiah. It records these words in John chapter 19, verse 38. Following his crucifixion on that cross, what happened? Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. 
Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus. He's the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, and Jesus had told him that he had to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the, the Jewish custom, the burial custom. And the place where Jesus was crucified, in that place there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So come with me and climb into this story of that most important week and the most important person who's ever lived, and now he has died and he's been taken down from the cross. What do we do with the body? People had scattered. People had abandoned him. Others' disciples had disowned him. A crashing, crushing blow to so many hopes we've been there before when we've had our hopes crushed i don't have any way to comprehend what their hopes being crushed might have felt like on that weekend body was taken it was placed in a in a, a tomb that was carved down it was uh, joseph arimathea probably had some wealth because it was sort of a wealthy tomb to to be able to take the body the body wasn't lowered into a grave and covered it wasn't you know uh, dealt with through cremation or anything like that in this particular sense and so the body of jesus was placed into a a, a cave an open sepulcher and a big huge stone was rolled in front of it it was done now, I don't know about you, but when someone dies, there's the after funeral service, memorial service gathering. And you gather with friends and family, but there's a heaviness to it. There's a difference to it. In fact, some of my family, extended family members, posted at one of our, our great family shots when we were all vacationing in Gulf Shores a number of years ago. And uh, one of my sister's wasn't looking all that happy in the picture and she gave reference on Facebook a comment like yeah that was just recently after dad had passed away and that lingers with you when loved ones pass away there they were the disciples the body had been dealt with they were bunkered away what hopes did they have next next what's next in life silence death ending no more hope but that passion week wasn't over now was it it continues on then in chapter 20 of the gospel of john all the gospels record of course the death the resurrection of christ the ending events in fact the vast majority of all four gospel accounts uh, articulate what happened in those last days of christ and then what we celebrate here this morning the gospel of john gives a lot of detail and the gospel of john 
uh, is where we find ourselves this morning for the account of the empty tomb. In John chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, (laughs) I got up pretty early today. I'm glad we don't have two services every Sunday. It was still dark. And I thought, that's when they went to the tomb. While it was still dark, on that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and John never references himself. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So she came running to two of the twelve primary disciples, followers of Jesus, wherever they were bunkered, and said, Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now that was her guess. Somebody's stolen the body of Jesus. Somebody's taken the body away. And in fact, it records later on with the, the government and the religious leaders that they encouraged that fake news to be the word on the street. Uh, we killed him, and trust me, Jesus was dead. There's something called the swoon theory, which says maybe Jesus wasn't dead, was put in the tomb, was there, and then he got up and said, hey, I'm okay, and heads on out. No, Romans knew how to kill people. He was dead. And he was put in the tomb. They thought it was over. The stones rolled away on Easter Sunday morning, as we now call it. Mary Magdalene shows up and thinks somebody's taken the body. Why? Because you don't think about people rising from the dead. Have you ever gone to a place where a loved one's buried or uh, commemorated or, or, or reflected on it? And are you thinking, well, I, I hope that uh, I see them today? No. When you're dead, you're gone. And that's the disposition, the place they were at. This was where Mary Magdalene was at. And so she went and told them. Now, what do you think Peter and John did? Well, so Peter and the other disciples started out to the tomb. They took off. And both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I always find that interesting. Was John sort of like, hey, I beat him to the tomb, you know? You know, maybe he was in better shape. Maybe he didn't have the garments on like Peter had. But John gets to the tomb first. And he bends over. He bent over and he looked in at the stripes of linen that were lying there but did not go in. So he looks in the tomb. He didn't go in. And the linens cloth is what all he saw it's just sort of laying there and then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb that's sort of Peter's personality you know he just barges right in whatever hey was boom he goes into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John's still trying to get that point, I guess, uh, he, he also went inside and he saw and believed. That's key. You see, at that point, you know, up until that point, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, even though Jesus had said that and predicted it. 
Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, what I want to do here this morning is it references this whole concept of an empty tomb is, is I could go a lot of different directions to be able to articulate to you uh, the reality, the positivity, the assurance that the tomb was empty. But I want to just look at one thing here this morning, and that is this verse in John 20, verse 6. You see, we sort of skim right over it. Some of us, we know the story. I've got it. Yeah, that's what Peter and John did when they showed up at the tomb. After Mary told them, they looked in the tomb. There wasn't anything there except the linens, and then they went on. Stop. Let's investigate this. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linens. This is what they would do in uh, Jewish customs or Hebrew customs of that day. They would take a very wide swath of linen cloth, and they would wrap the body from toe to head in this linen cloth. Sort of like if you had a leg injury and you wrapped it around your leg, right? And they would sort of almost make a cocoon around the person. And they just wrap it very tight. And the interesting thing is it said earlier there that Nicodemus had brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, spices, to sort of embalm him. Now, I don't know about you, but 75 pounds is, is a significant amount of weight. And they're pouring and taking those spices as they're wrapping the body of Jesus. And so the body of Jesus, when it was placed inside of the tomb, was a body inside of a cocoon of linen wrappings. And it would have been very uh, tight and heavy and solid in one sense. And then there was the head cloth laying by itself. And when they looked in and they saw the linens not stripped off and thrown here and there, but laying as they were, is how the scripture records it, then evidently that body just somehow came out of that cocooning wrappings and was not there. I mean, you could, if you were to take those wrappings off, you couldn't even unwrap it probably with the way it ended up getting sealed. You'd have to take a big set of scissors or something or knife and cut it open and pull it back for the body to get out. But it was still intact, the linen wrappings, just as they had been. How's that? How's that? You know, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead earlier in John 11. And it says about, about when Lazarus came out of the tomb, Lazarus, come out, right? He came out all sort of wrapped up in claws. And there's like, take those clothes off of him, those cloths off of him. That's how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He ended up dying again into a future resurrection because it was a different kind of resurrection. But here, wow, just as they've been wrapped. And then... And then catch this, the cloth was still lying in its place, just like it was, separate from the linens. Now, the cloth is the head cloth. 
And what would happen in those days is they'd be like a big square handkerchief or something, right? And they would place it on the face and tie it behind. So here is the linen wrappings around his body up to his neck and then the head cloth that was around him. And scripture teaches that the head cloth was not just thrown away, thrown around. It was folded up by itself, separate from the linen cloths. Now, you've got to understand some backstory here to catch this. That's why when they looked in, they believed. In Jewish culture, a master would have a guest over to his house, and the servants would serve, set out the dining spread, everything looked really good, and and they had the napkin cloths. And they would be folded up and seated by the plate. And the servant would stand to the side and, and observe and make sure they could help, but, but out of sight. And they would watch the master because the master, when the master was done eating, what he did was he'd take the uh, square napkin and he would... Uh, wipe his hands, wipe his mouth, and then he would throw it down. And that would signify to the servant that the master was done eating, and they would go around and start to clean up. But if the master folded up the napkin and placed it neatly beside the plate, the servant then was given clue that the master was not finished, that he was coming And so this powerful symbolism, when they looked into the tomb and the linen wrappings laying by themselves and the head cloth separate, but oh my goodness, it's folded up. On Good Friday, we talked about the sixth to the last word, the sixth to the seventh last words of Christ on the cross, which are recorded right there earlier in John 19. And Jesus said, it is finished. It didn't mean I am finished. It meant the work that he came to do to fulfill the Father's will for the forgiveness of sins. It is finished. We're going to look at that again in a second. But here's this powerful thing where on the cross he said, it is finished. But when he left the folded napkin, he said, I'm not finished. I'll be back. I'm coming back. I'm not done. Now, friends, I don't know about you. But that symbolism that was put into place by our Lord when he was resurrected was powerful to those disciples and spoke to them to a point that they would believe that his body hasn't been stolen, but that he's been resurrected. Scripture, none of the four Gospels does it say, and Jesus rose up and walked out of the tomb. Doesn't say that. He was just gone. Now he appeared to Mary in the garden. He appeared to the disciples in the upper room, including Doubting Thomas, if you remember that. He appeared to uh, the men walking on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to over 500 people over a period of a number of days. People were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the reason we're having church today is because the Christian movement was based and started on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ being alive. Jesus Christ's resurrection is one of the most historically verifiable events in all of history. 
The 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, was shot in a theater. You were taught that in history class and you believe that. But were you there to see if that really happened? No. Historians accurately recorded that. So also with Jesus Christ. Maybe you have doubts about his resurrection. Maybe not. Maybe this is just encouragement for you today about the empty tomb. But it's historically accurate and reliable. All the manuscripts and all the truth, they come from eyewitnesses. And we stand here today excited about not fantasy, not some religious, institutional, ceremonial holiday, but about a reality that happened. But here's the question to you. What does it matter? Even if you believe in the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what does it matter to you and I personally? And I want to look at four things and pop through these to give us encouragement today and then ask you this question. Do you believe? Do you believe and has the empty tomb dealt with the potential emptiness that you find in your life? Because if not, today can be the day that changes the rest of your life forever. Just like the resurrected Resurrection changed the life story, the history story of this world forever. The first thing that the resurrection does is that it became the seal to what happened on Good Friday. The resurrection means that my sin debt has been completely paid. It was like the receipt, the stamp on what happened on Good Friday. And we looked at this on Good Friday. We won't spend a lot of time parked there. But Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished, It's three words, but in the Greek, it's one word. It's the word tetelestai. And tetelestai was a a word that symbolizes the completion of a transaction. The completion of a transaction. In particular, in merchant categories, it meant paid in full. It was a happy, a victorious term. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai, it was a common term. And it was a happy term, to tell us die, man, I'm done with that course. To tell us die, I'm done with that degree. To tell us die, I'm done with that job. To tell us die, I'm done with being able to succeed in this particular area, whatever it may be. To tell us die. He dies on the cross. To tell us die, it is finished. What is finished? The payment for our sin is finished. Because each of us, as Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a sin debt we try to play and pay. And what do we try to do? We try to be good. We try to be nice. We try to stack up a lot of positives to go against the negatives. We go to church. We show up on Easter Sunday. We raise our hands and worship. We're, we're trying to get there. Trying to weigh out the good with the bad. Why? Because we feel the weight of sin. There is a debt. But there is no way to pay the sin debt. It's impossible to pay. Just like some of the debts you and I are paying on with our houses and stuff right now. It just won't go away. It's a huge debt. Jesus was the only one that could pay that sin debt because he was God himself, perfect in the flesh, had not sinned. And so when God sent his son, he sent the perfect sacrifice to pay the sin debt for us. To tell us die, it is finished, it's done. No more sacrificing animals, no more trying to measure up and, and do this prayer and go to this confessional. It is in Christ alone that we have the forgiveness of our sins and the power over sin. Don't try to go anywhere else but to the cross and the power of the resurrection. 
And so the powerful truth, number one for you today, is the empty tomb means that my sin debt has been completely paid to telestai. Have you applied it to your life? This verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only, as we said on Friday, did he pay the penalty for sin, but then he applied to us everything in the bank account to us. His righteousness is ours. You're in debt $100,000. The bank calls you up and says, hey, here's $100,000. Somebody put it in your account. What? His righteousness was accredited to you and I. Colossians 2.13, I love this passage of the Apostle Paul. He says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the debt, the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. My sin debt has been completely paid. Grand news, grand news for you today. The second is this, my enemy Satan is utterly defeated. Right on the heels of that verse in Colossians, the next verse says, And having the cross, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle, triumphing over them by the cross. Any of you ever watched The Passion of the Christ movie that was done by Mel Gibson a number of years ago? I love how all the passion of Christ is portrayed in that movie, especially at the end when Jesus dies on the cross. Satan is depicted in this black garb and he is crushed because he put someone to death who had no sin. He had no rights to them. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross for the Father, for the payment of sins. Something happened in the spiritual, unseen, supernatural realm at the cross and the power of the resurrection that gives us hope and changes our life today. And one of those things is that Satan, Satan, I don't know if you believe in it. Do you believe in him? Satan, your enemy, is utterly defeated. Satan was one of the three archangels recorded in Scripture. He fell from heaven, Scripture declares, and seemingly a third of the angels fell with him. Fallen angels, dark angels, sometimes referred to as demonic, unclean spirits. Some of you may know this, if not, hopefully this doesn't weird you out too much, but a couple years ago I was able to finish my doctorate of ministry project, and when I finished it, I chose to do it on a subject matter that is not spoken well of in a lot of churches, or either that's talked in some sort of hyper, um, crazy kinds of ways. And that is there's a spiritual world around us, and our enemy, Satan, will attack us through the world, the mindset of the world, the flesh, our sinful nature, the me, me, me stuff, but he can also attack us directly. Scriptures teach us this, and it says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so I formed this project on something I've been working uh, in behind the scenes to some degree in a lot of situations for over 35 years. And that is praying with people and seeing them freed from what's called strongholds, unclean spirits. In fact, this week in Rooted, which is our 10-week discipleship experience, was the week on spiritual warfare. And so we were talking about it. The week day one of the week five was you have an enemy. Do we reckon with it? And that enemy is out to destroy you because you're made in the image of God. And that enemy will seek to bring you down. And maybe some of you here today are wondering why your life is not going like it is. Could it be that there's something more than meets the eye in the spiritual realm? You have an enemy and the adversary and his workers are seeking to bring you down. 
Well, over the course of these years of my ministry, I've been able to pray with people and we interact in some counseling situation and also speak in great spiritual warfare and really finding out some people have uh, overtly strong demonic strongholds in their life. And so I was in a session once a number of years ago, and hopefully this doesn't weird you out too much, but this actually happened and it causes me just to pause and, and just step back. We were not finding freedom to happen over this individual, me and a group of uh, men, we were praying over them. And uh, I finally decided, you know, I'm going to just sort of torment this unclean spirit, this demonic spirit. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I call you to go back 2,000 years ago to the cross where Jesus Christ died and brought about your defeat. Because you have no grounds, you have no rights, you have no power to continue to torment this person. And this person in the state of being that they were were articulating what was coming to their thoughts and their minds. And this, this unclean spirit literally gave evidence of itself in this particular situation, not all situations I work with, but in this particular situation, and said, and this is almost verbatim quote, I know, I know, I was there. I was seated on a rock. I saw it all. His death, resurrection is my defeat. I will leave. Now, some of you are probably like I was then, and I still am to some degree. I go, say what? Did that just really happen? What do you mean? I'm not sure. I do know this, that the spiritual realm is real. Satan is real. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He has his demonic workers that work with him. What happened at the cross and the power of the resurrection was a crushing, crushing blow to them. And so when you pray as a believer in Christ and you pray in the authority of Jesus, you're praying not because you're such a great prayer and someone that's walking such a perfect life, but because of what Jesus Christ did, you pray over the person in power and strength. Today we're bringing back an opportunity to have a prayer area for people to be prayed over. It doesn't matter what your need is, your request, or how you're feeling, or your hopes, or praying for someone else. We want to be able to pray with people. But when we pray with one another, we want to pray with belief because of what happened on that day. The empty tomb means this to you in your life. Your enemy, Satan, is utterly defeated. The next thing I want to say is this, that the empty tomb means this for me, that my resurrection is eternally secure. My resurrection is eternally secure. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, he messed up back in the garden, him and Eve, and that sin, that sinful nature carries its way through to us today. That's why your toddler goes, mine, me, 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 rather than yours, yours, I love you. There's a sinful nature. But in Christ all be made alive, but each in their own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. There are stages here. The first resurrection of Christ is the first fruits, the beginning. Then when Christ comes, those who are believers in him. And then it talks about future eschatology, end time stuff, when there'll be a future resurrection. But it's playing its way out according to God's plan. And after he has destroyed all dominion, power, authority, and power, 
He will do that, for he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. My resurrection is eternally secure. So if you're worried here this morning that you got this brief little life and it's moving pretty quick, and I turn to another uh, uh, decade here, I guess, this year, when I turn 60, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm 60? I still think I'm 30. You do that in your mind? And I'm like, I need to be in that young adult group. I used to lead young adult groups. How could I be in this stage of life? It goes so quick, right? But <laughs> it's this idea that life is brief. Ecclesiastic says that God has put eternity in our hearts. That's because you were born to live. You weren't born to die. Death is a result of sin. The debt penalty has been paid. Satan, as your enemy, has been utterly defeated. And you have the promise of resurrection, just like Christ, if you believe in him and his resurrection. Uh, any of you see the great game that happened last night on the Final Four? Gonzaga, undefeated record, going up against UCLA. I'm a sort of a college basketball person from my earlier days. And, and I, uh, I watched the game, actually lost a lot of study time. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm watching this game. I'm like, wow, UCLA's hanging in there. You know, we're going to do that great this year. And there's this undefeated team. And uh, UCLA ties it up. And uh, then the kid from the other team, Gonzaga, throws in a bank shot from half court to win in overtime. This is an incredible game. You go, oh my goodness. I go, oh, that, that's, that's what the dreams are about. NCAA, March Madness, that kind of thing. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago when uh, I was uh, looking through all the teams and watching some of the early first round games. There was a team from Grand Canyon University, which is in Phoenix, Arizona. It's sort of like Cal Baptist University. And Grand Canyon is sort of younger Christian school, and they made the NCAA tournament. Pretty big deal, right? And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. They got beat by Iowa in the first round, but man, they made it to, you know, uh, the, uh, the NCAA tourney. But then I was reading this article in USA Today that one of their key players, a senior, a fifth-year senior, uh, his name was Oscar Freyer, was so excited at that game and thanked the university and his great years living. He died in a car accident later that week in Northern California with his sister. And your heart just gut-wrenching. You're like, wow, you make a tournament, and that very week you end up dying. But then I read down to the last part, and at the part at the bottom, it said that assistant coach from Grand Canyon University, Ed Schilling, had a chapel service during the uh, season-ending tournaments and asked if anyone wanted to receive Christ as their Savior. And Oscar Freyer raised his hand. Man, he praise God. But the thing that struck me about the article was who did it. His name was Ed Schilling. I know Ed Schilling. He used to be a part of my church back in the Midwest. He actually ran a basketball academy for college people trying to make it into the pros. He was later assistant coach at Indiana and UCLA. He was now assistant coach at Grand Canyon University. I know Ed. I've given spiritual encouragement of Ed. I know where Ed's headspace is at. And Ed was there in the headspace at chapel to offer the invitation for people to know that they can be saved so that if you were to die, you would know that you'd have the resurrection from the dead and i'm like praise god for faithful servants i want to call ed up and go great job in offering the invitation 
And I want to offer that invitation to you this morning. You see, these things that we're given through the power of the empty tomb are transformational for our lives. Not only in the life to come, but in this life. The fourth thing I just want to say in brief is my life belonging, my life longings can be fully, can be fully realized. John 10.10, words of Jesus himself, probably my favorite verse in the Bible, says this, the thief, Satan, comes to only steal and kill and destroy. And that's what he's doing. We see it happening in all of our world. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In Jesus, your longings for security and safety, for forgiveness and love, for companionship and community, for meaning and purpose, for peace and prosperity, for transcendence, for wonder, for adventure, and an eternal life to come are met in Him. Stop looking in all these other places. Do your best. Be successful. Love on family. Serve purposes here on this earth. But friends, get the first piece right. And that is that your life has been transformed by Jesus' life to come because He has come to give you life and to give it to the full. So those four things. My sin debt has been completely paid. My enemy Satan is utterly defeated. My resurrection is eternally secured. My life longings can be fully met. But only if the empty tomb becomes the reality for your empty or potentially empty life today. You know, Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he spoke to Lazarus' sister and he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he looked her straight in the eye. Could you see Jesus doing this? He looks each of us in the eye this morning. He goes, <clears throat> so what about you? Do you believe? How do you receive Jesus Christ as Savior? I'm going to give you just a simple ABC if you've never done it before. And then we're going to close with an amazing song. ABC, if you've never invited Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, the first thing you do is you, A, admit. Admit that I am sinner, that I have a sin debt that needed to be paid. And then with that admission, comes the need for repentance. A lot of people say, yep, I'm not good. But repentance means a change of mindset, a turning from direction, whether it's indifference or rebellion to God. I'm now turning from that life and I'm now going to admit I'm a sinner and repent of my sin. B is believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in his life his death and his resurrection. And oh, you may have some doubts and some concerns and maybe you need to investigate that all. And that's pretty cool. Go for it. No reason to try to just assume you can get somewhere where you're not. But you need to believe Jesus Christ is God himself come in the flesh. He lived a perfect life, 
At no time in any space and time, any second of any year that he lived, was he outside the Father's will. That's why he became the perfect sacrifice. You believe in his sinless life. You believe in his death. And then you believe in his resurrection. But you can admit and you can believe. You can do A, B, but you got to do C. You have to commit. You commit your life to follow Jesus Christ through faith. We just finished up a series recently here at this church about being a follower of Jesus. And we said all followers originally came to Jesus because they weren't perfect. They were all sinners and they came to Jesus with doubts. It's all right to be a follower of Jesus and come in those kinds of places as you seek to follow him. A, B, C. Have you done that? Do you believe? Have you admitted your sin? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you committed your life to him? You can trust him today. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we draw these words to a close from your scripture, we're mindful that your spirit is working today, continuing to defeat the enemy and continuing to call people to yourself. And across this room, if there is anyone who desires to see that empty tomb make a difference in their life by receiving you as Lord and Savior, then I just ask you, to pray these simple words after me. And it's not the words, it's not, the, it's not the, um, the strength of anything other than the reality that you're receiving it by simple faith. Just pray with me, dear Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the empty tomb and the offer of salvation and a transformed life. Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner and I repent of my sin. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you lived a perfect life, that you died on a cross for my sins, and that you were raised from the grave on the third day. And Jesus, I now commit my life to follow you. And I do so by faith into my life from this day forward I would choose to live with you as you enable me be my savior be my leader be my lord thank you for the resurrection thank you that the empty tomb can make a difference in my life today and from this day forward I will choose to follow you amen amen Friends, if you prayed that prayer today, I won't ask you to raise your hand or something like that, but we're excited for you. Welcome to the kingdom of God, into the fold of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things we talked about are yours today. And you never even thought you were going to get anything other than, you know, just some sort of some delayed uh, lunch plans. You get the power of the empty tomb. You get your sins forgiven. You get to have an enemy who is defeated. You get to know that you will be raised from the dead to live eternally in you and have your life longings fulfilled. The team's going to be leading us in a song that kicks back to Isaiah 53 that foretold the prophetic events six, seven hundred years before Jesus died on the cross. Man of sorrow, what a name for the Son of God who came. If you committed your life to Christ, there that connect card that's in your seat back, there's a place on the back to mark, I'm committing my life to Christ today. Mark that, put your name, at least a, a phone number down, and place that in the basket on your way out. We would love to be able to follow up with you. There's also a place to say, I have spiritual interest. I got questions. 
friends, do not put it on the back burner. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture declares, and you have the opportunity for a transformed life because the man of sorrows became the victorious Lord and Savior over death. Join us as we sing.